Hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, I'm excited to get into the Word of God with you guys. Also excited to be joined with uh, Carpentry Campus and Ventura Campus. Let's give them some love. Let's turn in Ephesians to chapter 3. We're going to be in verse 1 and 2 this morning. Uh, but I want us to read that, that whole section. Let's, we're going to read from verse 1 all the way through 13. Because uh, we're going to be here for a while. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 1 through 2. But let's read all the way through 13 together. And this is what Paul says. When I think of all this... I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the benefit of you Gentiles, assuming, by the way, that you know God gave me the special responsibility of extending his grace to you Gentiles. As I briefly wrote earlier, God himself revealed his mysterious plan to me. As you read what I have written, you will understand my insight into this plan regarding Christ. God did not reveal it to previous generations, but now by his spirit, he has revealed it to his holy apostles and prophets. And this is God's plan. Both Gentiles and Jews who believe the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Both are part of the same body and both enjoy the promise of blessings because they belong to Christ Jesus. By God's grace and mighty power, I have been given the privilege of serving him by spreading this good news. Though I am the least deserving of all God's people, he graciously gave me the privilege of telling the Gentiles about the endless treasures available to them in Christ. I was chosen to explain to everyone this mysterious plan that God, the creator of all things, had kept secret from the beginning. God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Because of Christ and our faith in him, we can now come boldly and confidently into God's presence. So please, don't lose heart because of my trials here. I am suffering for you, and you should feel honored. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you for what Paul would describe as the eternal purpose of God, the ageless, timeless truth that, God, you planned on unraveling for many centuries. God, thank you that we get to have it unloaded on us in all of its glory and in all of its wonder and in all of its beauty. And we pray that this morning you would take some of those things that maybe appear lofty and heady and grand and mysterious and you would make them simple enough for us to be wowed by, to be changed to be transformed. God, we've come because we, we believe that there's something mysterious and wonderful that happens when we open up your word. We believe that the Holy Spirit changes our hearts to see Jesus Christ in a saving way, but also to be like Jesus Christ in a saving way. And God, we wanna come together in this little building 
in our little church gatherings and our assemblies across the coastlands because we believe that Christ Jesus dwells where we are in a saving way. And we ask God that today you would give us more than just a lecture. You'd give us more than just some added information and knowledge. Pray that you would give us more than just some words on a page, but that you would transform our hearts, Lord, to be more like you. We believe that you are the savior of the world. We believe that that means something, that the coastland of California is longing and thirsty for something greater to live for than themselves. We believe that you are that champion. You are that hero. So as we open up your word by faith, we pray that you would enlighten our heart to the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. Through Paul's words right now, in Jesus' name, amen. Um, I wanted to read the whole thing, even though we're going to be in verses 1 and 2. I wanted to read all 13 verses because Paul right now is doing that thing that he does. He's pulling one of his usual stunts where he starts off a sentence, loses his train of thought, goes into a digression for many verses, and then eventually maybe comes back to his original thought or maybe does not. In this instant, he comes back to it later in verse 14. You see in verse 1, he starts off with this thought, when I think of all this, what he's referring to is all of chapter 2. When I think of all of chapter 2, the gospel story, you know, this thing that God did with these uh, hostile enemies and Gentiles and Jews and making them one, turning hostile people into the bride of Christ Jesus. When I think of all of this, comma, And then he goes off into his little thing. He goes into this digression, doesn't come back to his original thought until verse 14, where he starts that same sentence off. When I think of all this, I fall to my knees and I pray to the Father. You see, Paul starts chapter 3, verse 1, with the intent to pray. When I think about the gospel, I want to pray for you that your heart would be enlightened. But we don't, we don't get a taste of that until verse 14 because he goes off into a tangent. When I think of all of this, he starts with the intent to pray, starts thinking about the gospel and just gets carried away. And he goes into a digression that will last from verse two all the way through verse 13. Starts by saying, I, Paul, am a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And then he begins to explain the mysteries that God has given him, the things that God is doing in the gospel, his eternal purpose, that which he is uh, uh, bringing forth in the world, things that would dazzle our minds, and all of that that he has shared with Paul so that Paul could share with us. He begins to explain all of that. And the purpose of this he gives us in verse 13 is so that you will not lose heart because of my trials here. He gives us a a brief synopsis of the story. That's his digression. Is so that in verse 13, you will not lose heart because you see me in prison right now. You won't lose heart because of anything. I'm telling you this little story before I pray for you so that you will not lose heart because of my trials here. So as we read Paul, he starts to talk about himself. But he's not going on this tangent. He's not showing us Paul's resume like, look at what I did. I'm so awesome. God shared me all these secrets and I want you to be wowed by it. That's not the point of this tangent. It's because he wants to give us a reason for hope. Saying this is the reason you don't have to lose heart because of the situation that you're in. Everything then in the middle of this little parenthetical statement, everything between verse 2 or, or, or verse 1 and verse 13. 
is Paul's reason why the believer should not lose heart despite what they happen to be going through. And he'll list off a number of things. And for the next six weeks, we're going to look at some of those things. Six different things, I believe, that Paul sheds light on, all being connected to verse 13. This is why you should not lose heart. So we are going to camp out here. We're going to steep ourselves in the word of God like a bag of tea (laughs) until we leave this building, until we leave our church assembly understanding why we should not lose heart, regardless of what gets thrown at us. And we're going to start in verse 1 and verse 2, which first thing that Paul brings up is the comfort that comes from self-forgetfulness, blessed self-forgetfulness. The question we we ask is, how can Paul, he, he introduces himself as a prisoner, how can Paul maintain solace and comfort and peace and joy in a difficult situation? The answer that he's going to show us, this is the title of the the sermon this morning, is blessed self-forgetfulness, forgetting yourself. God is somehow enabling Paul to forget about himself and to think beyond his own tiny little life. God is supernaturally enabling Paul to think beyond his own life. And we're going to look what that looks like under three headings just by looking at, at Paul in verses uh, 1 and 2, in three headings, we're going to look at Paul's expense, what it cost him. We're going to look at Paul's redemption, and then we're going to look at Paul's motive. And after that, I think we will have enough by the word of Paul to leave here with our joy intact and something beyond our own petty situations and circumstances. Paul's expense. Very easy. What did it cost him? He's a prisoner. (laughs) Being a prisoner in the first century under Roman rule was not under, uh, it wasn't on anyone's bucket list. I'll just put it that way. That wasn't the route that you wanted to go. Now, we, we, not many of us think of prison as a wonderful way to end our lives, but much more exacerbated in the first century under the Pax Romana, under the Roman iron fist of Rome, There were many different uh, ways to be imprisoned by Rome, most of them cruel and unusual. In Paul's case, he was uh, lowered into a manhole in the center of a street into a jail cell under the street. So imagine a farmer's market on uh, downtown, maybe State Street or uh, downtown Ventura or Linden Avenue. And as you're walking the street in the middle of the pouring rain, all the sewage is going into this grate, into this compartment underneath where you're walking, and there would be Paul. He'd be in a compartment under the ground where he'd never leave or see the light of day. He'd uh, be there with a, a Roman prison guard, uh, probably in his own excrement. It was dirty down there. There was no light. It stank, and he would be there, most likely chained either to the wall or to the ground. Heavy iron shackles that would probably rust uh, by being in contact with his sweat and his perspiration, painful, uh, wearing, burdened. He would be neglected by friends. Uh, we don't It's hard for us to understand the extent and the punishment of what it meant to be a prisoner under the threat of Rome in the first century, but even your friends would neglect you because of its cruel and unusual punishment. They wouldn't even bring you, they wouldn't even bring you cornbread in prison. They wouldn't bring you anything. By being a, a, a prisoner's friend, you put yourself under the same threat that the prisoner that uh, you were visiting was under. 
By visiting a prisoner, Rome would look at you as a likely threat. And for you, if you weren't a Roman citizen, say you wanted to visit Paul in his distress, you would be lowered down into that prison cell with these other prison guards with Paul and you would be immediately thought of as an ally or an accomplice. And there might be a chance that you would never get out of that cell if the prison guard thought was necessary. Makes sense that as Paul writes his letters, he often uh, speaks of being neglected by all of his friends. That's probably the reason. It was very likely that they were under the threat of death, at least torture or imprisonment, just by befriending Paul. No friends held in a hole in the street. Acts chapter 28 tells us that Paul even had to pay his own rent. He had to pay the rent for the cell that he was in, shackled down. Now this would have been bad news for anybody, but consider where Paul came from. A Jew of Jews, a Hebrew of Hebrews, trained in religious knowledge. He reached the height of religion in Judaism by becoming a Pharisee. He was of the the most beautiful pedigree in the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. He would have been educated in theology, probably learned multiple languages in his uh, hometown of Tarsus under the esteemed rabbi Gamaliel. As if that wasn't enough, he was a Roman citizen, so he had all the privileges that was allotted to him by being the best of the best in the Jewish world, but he was allotted all the privileges that, was, uh, that would have came with a Roman citizenship. He had everything, man. He was the front row, esteemed by many, and all of that taken away when he was put in prison for the gospel. Now, we can possibly relate to the cost and the expense that Paul went through. And yet Paul, as we read in verse 1, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the benefit of the Gentiles. We cannot often relate to Paul being in prison, thinking about others in his distress. We can possibly think about the expense, the suffering, the conflict, because we all go through conflict, and yet Paul's imprisonment he used for the benefit of other people. Stuck in a hole thinking about other people because Paul's imprisonment somehow didn't crush him. Somehow, Paul was unfazed by even the worst things that came his way. Why? Paul seemed to understand that one of the greatest threats to humanity, that one of his greatest threats, is the very thing that we often think we need most to survive. Self-obsession. The very thing that we need in order to get by in life, the very thing we need to preserve our life, the very thing we need to get ahead, self-obsession. Paul understood at an early time by virtue of the gospel, that is my deepest threat. I need to get rid of it. Whether it's watch out for yourself, look out for yourself, me, myself, and I. No one is gonna watch out for your best interests but you. You've got your own back. Pat yourself on the back. Do what you need to do. Watch out for yourself. Get what's coming to you. Strive after these things. Whatever form, whatever facet it takes, a form of self-obsession. I am in this game for myself. Paul, as he was penning this letter to the church in Ephesus, in the same year would write a letter to the church in Philippi, and he would say to the Philippian church, he would say, you know all of those things that I attained, the the pedigree, the pedigree, being born into the right family, the education, the theology, the clout, the status, my job, all of that stuff, 
I'm gonna let you in on a secret. I, I once thought those things were valuable, but now I consider them to be worthless because of what Christ has done. And in one fell swoop, we see that something has undermined Paul's sense of self-obsession. Something about what Christ has done has completely unhinged his love of self. Brings us to our second point. Paul found a way to be redeemed from the very threat that he wanted to be, that he wanted to escape from. Now, art, some of you might be hearing this word and you hear obsession. You think that's kind of a strong word. I can see how that applies to some people. That's kind of a strong word to just sweep all of humanity with, obsession. I don't, I don't think I obsess about anything. Obsession is really just something that dominates your thoughts. Our thoughts are dominated by something. And by default, it's probably ourselves. To say we're self-obsessed means that our best interests in mind are dominating our thoughts, the decisions that we make. How we get to make those decisions, the thought process, our worldview. It's our desire to get ahead in life. It's our, our desire to put ourselves above every other thing in priority and in decision. And we self-obsess when we think very much about ourselves. And that's pretty obvious, right? You're a self-obsessor if you think very highly about yourself. You want to build an empire for yourself. The reason that you are in the job that you are in is because you want what's coming towards you. And you want to earn what's coming towards you. And you feel like you deserve something that's coming towards you that is very, very, very well off. Or the money or the college education or where you happen to be in life or Uh, the chapter in life that you happen to be, you look at it through a lens that says, I deserve better. We think much of ourselves. We think we deserve better than we have at this point. You might say, well, that's not me at all. That's, I can see how that's one person that I know. He's pretty into himself, but that's not me at all. You see, I don't think it's wrong to think highly of myself because I balance that by thinking highly of other people. So I'm in it, you know, I'm in it for myself. That's not necessarily bad because I do good things for other people. I kind of balance it out. I do good things for others. But if we were really honest with some of those things, could you really say, I do good works for other people from a purely altruistic point of mind? There is absolutely nothing in any decision that I make that isn't for at least some end goal for myself. I do it purely for other people. I can't honestly say that about things that I do well. There always seems to be something in the back of my head that that wonders and hopes that I'll get something out of it. Even if it's just a little approval. Some of you may say, well, that's not me either. I'm not self-obsessed. I do good things for others, but more importantly, I don't think I'm, I'm self-obsessed because I'm, I'm actually a, I'm a pretty humble person. <laughs> Always a weird thing to say, right? Guy wins an Olympic gold medal for being the most humble person on earth, and he's immediately disqualified and stripped of his award because he approaches the podium to accept it. There's just something weird about accepting the fact that you are humble. You ever get to a point where you think, I, you know, I, I think I've achieved. Or if someone actually speaks that of you, like, I really appreciate that you're, you're so humble. 
You might say thank you, but do you ever feel in your head like, oh, yeah, I guess I, I kind of am, huh? Oh, go me. You see, self-obsessing isn't just thinking much of yourself. Self-obsession is thinking less of yourself too. False humility. Both of them are forms of self-obsession. See, if you think too highly of yourself, you're self-obsessed. We got that. That makes sense. But if you're wallowing in self-pity, you're also self-obsessed because you're still thinking about yourself. And the problem with self-obsession is that you will be crushed under the weight of self. You'll be crushed under your own weight. You'll either be crushed under the weight of trying to attain the standards that you have set up, these impossible standards that you have set up for yourself, or you'll be crushed under the weight of your own self-pity. Either way, you're crushed under yourself. Here's why the gospel that Paul seems to advocate so uh, stringently so emphatically, so passionately. Is, and here's why it's such good news is that Christ redeems us from our thirst of approval from other people. The standards that we have set up. The self-pity that results from the standards that we have not attained. Sets us free from our thirst for approval. And he does it in a way that we would never do. Think about marriages and when your spouse or when your significant other, or when your boyfriend or girlfriend or when someone you love is feeling self-obsessed and how you want to correct them in that. What are, the, what are some of the common ways that we do it? Well, stop serving yourself. Stop thinking so much of it. You're so self-centered. Think about me for a change. No, get off your, your, your sofa and like help me with stuff. Like think about me for a second. The way that we solve other people's self-obsession is by ourselves being self-obsessed. And the circle goes round and round and round and round. Our only way to solve the problem of self-love is by treating it with our own self-love. And here's what's so radically preposterous and crazy and outlandish about Jesus Christ is he doesn't solve the problem of self-obsession with self-obsession. He switches the tables on us. He unleashes the kingdom. He turns everything upside down. And the way that he solves our self-obsession is by sacrificing himself for us. Paul would tell the Philippian church in Philippians chapter two that Jesus, who has every reason to be self-obsessed, because he's God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he places his privileges as God on the shelf, so to speak, and he becomes a servant. He becomes humble even to the point of death, death on a cross. The way Jesus treats the sickness of our self-obsession is by giving himself for self-obsessed people. You may say, well, I understand how that works, I think, but I don't understand why self-obsession is that bad to begin with. No one's gonna look out for me except me, and I need to get ahead. I need to put food on the table, I need to make money, I need to go to college, I need to strive after these things. It's what strong people do. They pull themselves up by their bootstraps and they put themselves ahead. This is really for our own good. That would be almost entirely true if it weren't for Genesis chapter three. Some of you know the story. God didn't actually create the world distorted or with the presence of sin, he created it perfectly. 
And when he created Adam and Eve, he created humanity that was absolutely perfect. And humanity exists to reflect the glory of God in all of his character and attributes. We model God in a small human way, but in a perfect way. We image the presence and the glory of God, and that's why he designed us for that relationship and for that intimacy. And so relationships between God and humanity were perfect in Genesis 1 and 2, and relationships between people were perfect in those first two chapters until we got self-obsessed. Genesis chapter 3, sin enters the world, our fault, and everything gets distorted. Now, we can still do good things for one another, We can still pat each other on the back. We can still uh, help each other out. We can still do good things in the world. But everything in the world at this point, from Genesis 3 on, is at some point or another distorted by the fall. We are no longer perfectly human. Everything is marred in some form or another. And so the reason that looking out, our our self-interest, self-obsession, doing good things, uh, doing things on our own benefit, striving for things that we're passionate about, sometimes ends up hurting us is because it's based still on the self-destructive desires that we inherited from the fall. And so we might be able to do good things, but we also do bad things, even with the best of intentions. And Christ Jesus comes in And as John would say in his gospel, he puts on flesh and he dwells among people. He steps into our neighborhood. He becomes one of us. He eats our food. He dwells in our our neighborhood. He works our jobs. He enters into our relationships so that he can come in as a perfect, uh, uh, as a human and live as the perfect human that God designed only by the power of the Holy Spirit in him. He put his divine privileges on the shelf and shows us what it looks like to be perfectly human by the power of the Holy Spirit of God in him. Tells us in Galatians chapter two, verse 20 and 21, Paul says that he doesn't just do this just to show himself off, although he does. Paul says, of himself, my old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ now lives in me. Do you hear hear that? Christ didn't just come to live a perfect life. He came to, to assimilate our broken lives into his. Paul says, I live now in this earthly broken body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. This is another beautiful facet of the gospel. God didn't just come to forgive your sins. He does that, right? God doesn't just come to forgive your sins and then be like, all right, deal's done. I did my part. Now you're, you're free to go. Actually, you know, just, just step into the corner for a second. Try not to touch anything. You're good. I'll meet you in heaven. He doesn't just come and wash us from our sins and forgive us. He frees us from the burden of living for ourselves. He frees us from self-obsession so that we can walk in a new identity that Christ has given us according to that original plan, original mandate that we would one day be made perfectly human in the image of God himself. God doesn't just remove our sin and stick us in a corner so that we don't break stuff. He gives us something better to live for. And this is the purpose of the law. 
And it's so hard for us to think about the law sometimes. It's hard for me to think about the law sometimes because when we think of the law, we think, what do we think about? We think of the rules and the regulations, the Ten Commandments. And what do we think about when we think of those things? Don't do this and don't do that and do this better and do that better and stop doing this and start doing that better. We think of them as rules and regulations, maybe that God in his anger has somehow concocted to ruin our lives. Not true. All of those things flow out of a beautiful, glorious God. And he gave the law to to, to humanity as the best way for human life to thrive. It is the perfect way to live. And Jesus summed it up. If you're lost in all the rules and regulations, 613 of them in the First Testament, Jesus sums them up like this. The law and the prophets can be summarized in this way. The first, most important, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your your soul, and your strength. The second is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God. Love others. The way humanity was created in order to thrive. Why do we think of the law as a bunch of things concocted by an angry God to ruin our lives and stifle us? Because only the person who has been delivered from their self-obsession can know the joy of God's law. To know it as King David knew it, who wrote the longest chapter in the Bible about what? The joy of God's law. Said my soul is longing to follow your will. And this is Paul's motive. This is our last point. This is how Paul responds to the gospel. You see, when you're free from the weight of self-obsession. When you get to a place where Paul is no longer thinking about himself, you're no longer thinking about yourself, your motivation still has to come from somewhere. Where did it come from with Paul? He says in verse two, assuming by the way that you know God gave me the special responsibility of extending his grace to you. In other words, of stewarding this grace. Paul's motivation, when it was no longer himself, was the grace of God. This radical concept that God would give us more than we deserve. What did we deserve but hell and death? That God in his tenacious, bizarre, unbelievable love would say, I am going to give you the world even though you don't deserve it through my son, Christ Jesus. Grace, when it's really understood, when it's really grasped, when you weed through the religious concepts of it, when you uh, weed through the surface concepts of it, and you understand the radical, scandalous nature of grace, grace upsets the equilibrium. It rattles your soul. It unhinges your self-preserving tendencies. It undermines your self-obsession. It gets us over ourselves in a beautifully mysterious way. And it causes us to see for the first time outside of our own lives because our approval for the first time in our entire lives is met in someone more important than ourselves. And when we've been striving to somehow make just a little bit more money or get a little bit more popularity or get and attain this thing or if we can get this thing and being, uh, being met with failure over and over, God sets his foot down in our business and says, I approve you with all the righteousness that I deserve and he lavishes his grace on us. The person that understands that, their equilibrium gets shaken up. And you know you're growing in the grace of God because you see this change from self-obsession to blessed self-forgetfulness. 
And that's the real humility. Tim Keller put it this way. He said, the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It's thinking of myself less. You know you're growing in the gospel of grace because all of a sudden other people start to become more important to you than yourself. And that's something you and I, I, for crying out loud, cannot manufacture. I can pretend to love people more than myself. I can act in that way, but my heart cannot change unless the gospel takes hold of it. And you know it's taking hold when you stop obsessing over self and you start to forget about yourself and think more about other people. You can tell you've met someone who's really humble because they seem to be more interested in you than themselves. And isn't that Paul? Verse 13. Please don't lose heart because of my trials. I'm suffering for you. Paul's perspective somehow allows him to be able to be imprisoned by the iron hand of Rome in all of their cruelty and unusual punishment and say, I'm not a prisoner of Caesar. Oh, they might own the cell that I'm currently residing in, but I'm not a victim. I am a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Christ has me in this cell for a reason. You're that reason. The gospel has taken hold of Paul's heart so much that he's able to say in any circumstance, whether he's rich, whether he's poor, whether he's being persecuted, whether he's gotten favor, I am not the victim and I am not the prisoner of Rome. I am a prisoner of Christ Jesus and I will be here until he sets me free and I do this for his glory and your benefit. When the gospel is understood, the self-obsessed become others obsessed because they belong to Jesus Christ. It's beautifully and wonderfully freeing. Now, some of you are hearing this and you're thinking, okay, I, I see the trajectory. I, I see how the gospel turns people who are into themselves to be into God and into other people, and that's great, but I still don't understand how that fixes my problem. Yesterday, I just lost my job. How does self-forgetfulness answer my, my job loss? My marriage is on the, is on the rocks. How does, how does self-forgetfulness fix my marriage? I'm going through the worst possible time in my life. How does self-forgetfulness answer that? How does it meet me where I'm at in this moment? Here's how it does. If we, Paul is teaching, that if we can somehow, as he was, be so satisfied in Jesus Christ that we are not unhinged by the things that happen to us, that there is somehow a possibility by the grace of God that a human being in this life can be so satisfied in the gospel of Jesus. We can be so satisfied in King Jesus that we are not unhinged by anything that happens to our bodies, that anything that happens to our minds, that anything that happens to our home, to ourselves. We are no longer eaten up by our own selfish cravings. We are no longer dictated by the spirit of the age. We are no longer dictated by consumerism. We are no longer dictated by individualism. We are no longer victims of anything or anyone. We are slaves of Jesus Christ and nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus. That's what Paul is saying. You can get to that place by the grace of God where you are no longer unhinged even by prison. Whether it's the Roman prison or the prison 
of your circumstances. And I wanna ask you this question this morning. What would it be like for us if we actually lived tangibly affected by the gospel in that way? What would happen to your sense of joy and contentment if the gospel got a hold of your heart in that way where you forgot about yourself? I'll tell you, you'd no longer worry. Because you wouldn't, you wouldn't care what happens to you. What would happen to our community as a church in Carpinteria and in Ventura and in Santa Barbara County if we got a hold of the gospel in such a transformative way? There would be no sense of comparison. We wouldn't care what other people thought about us. You know how that would change our behavior towards one another? You know how that would change our behavior towards outsiders of the church? There would no longer be jealousy. We wouldn't care if others had more than we did. We'd actually rejoice in what they had. And people with lots would share what they had with the people that didn't have anything because we are no longer dictated by these silly, uh, uh, no longer unhinged by these silly circumstances or what other people think about us. Do you know what this would do to the mission of the church in the city of Santa Barbara and abroad, the coastlands, Ventura, Carpinteria? It would change our marriages. Spouses would no longer be seeking in that marriage to satisfy themselves. They would be thinking about one another. Think about what that would look like. Oh, honey, you know, I'll, I'll do the dishes. You know, sit on the couch and watch TV. Watch football all day. No, I don't want to watch football. You know what? I'll take care of the kids. Why don't you just take, the, take your girlfriends and just go to Disneyland for a week and just enjoy yourself? <laughs> no, you know what? You go to Disneyland. I'll take care of the kids. Let's all go to Disneyland together. Happiest place on earth is the family that has understood the point of grace. What it would look like in our community if we were serving the poor, not because we felt obligated to serve the poor, but because we knew we were actually serving Jesus. I'm not imprisoned by Rome. I'm imprisoned by Jesus, gladly. What would it do to your workplace if you waltzed in on Monday morning tomorrow and clocked in with a different mindset? I am not employed by my Vaughn's manager. I am not employed by IBM. I am not employed by Raytheon. I am not employed by this hospital. I am employed by Jesus Christ. What would it do to the way that you worked and the way that you witnessed if that was your mindset? I am going into this. I don't care if it's a dead-end job and I don't see the point in it. I am going to live as if Jesus Christ were here employing me to be on mission in a spirit of self-blessed self-forgetfulness. Brothers and sisters, we would see change. We would see the world wanting to come to the church to get a peace of what we're experiencing, but before they do, we've got to experience it first, and it's impossible to cure our self-obsession apart from the powerful gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's go there this morning, in Jesus' name. Heavenly Father, we ask that right now that you would heal that deepest part of us, Lord, we want, to, we want to experience what Paul experienced, the person whose identity is in Jesus Christ and not themselves. 
comforted that their joy cannot be stolen in any circumstance. Lord, we are in the midst of turmoil and shaky circumstances. There are people in our community that have lost their jobs, that can't make ends meet, whose marriages are, are, are on the rocks. There are families that are going through turmoil. There are people that are going through conflict. There are things that are, are happening in our lives that we just can't handle, and we look to the person of Jesus Christ to bring us joy in the midst of those circumstances. But Lord, first, we need to be healed of our broken identities. We ask that you would heal them and that you would give us a taste of what you came to show us, this blessed humility, this blessed self-forgetfulness, getting our eyes off ourselves and off the blessed one, Jesus Christ. We pray that as that happens, you'd show us the joy of falling in love with you and in love with other people. Only you can do that in this church community. Do it for your own glory that we would be able to say to each other, I have not lost heart. I have not lost heart. My confidence is in the risen Son of God. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.